Greetings, you prototypical posthumans. You prequels to a sequel. You aspiring ancestors of AI. You master recordings, intuiting your reincarnations as remixes. I'm Michael Garfield, welcoming you to another episode of Future Fossils Podcast, the podcast that explores our place in time, and which, given my historical propensity for discussing the complex ethics of Westworld and Blade Runner 2049, etc., might as well be a show called Don't Beat Robots. So file this episode under that particular subheading of future fossils shows in which we examine the perils and promises of exalting the dumb, insensate world of modernity into the intelligent and responsive world awaiting us over that digital rainbow. This week's guest is George Dvorsky, legendary science blogger for Gizmodo, io9. He's been rapping about AI, robotics, transhumanism, future literacy, and also, strangely, dinosaurs for at least my entire adult life, which makes him practically a patron saint of future fossils. And it's a total treat to have him on the show and share this conversation with you. But first, I want to give a quick shout out to the 125 people supporting me on Patreon, the 88 people who have rated this show on iTunes, and the 1,285 people in the Future Fossils Facebook discussion group. Y'all are awesome. It's really cool to have developed a small but focused community around these ideas and these discussions. And I'm honored to know that such a large fraction of the listenership for this podcast, something like 6% of you are actually paid subscribers. Kind of blows my mind. I'd like to give a special shout out to the Innerverse podcast for joining that list of patrons. I was just on Innerverse for their 100th episode and had a really delightful conversation. So find them and check that out. And also to Laura Fash for upping her pledge significantly. You know it means a lot to me, but what does it mean to you? Well, after a thorough study of other people's Patreon pages, I think I can safely assert that I'm putting out entirely too much cool stuff for supporters, including fractal coloring book pages that I drew a viscous and iridescent flow of strange but wonderful live acoustic electronic music, early release and exclusive episodes like the ridiculously sweet three-hour conversation I had with legendary psychonaut and science fiction aficionado the tea fairy, early access to new writing for the Future Fossils book, and a bunch of other stuff. So if you like this show and you think that it should continue, then go sign up at patreon.com slash Michael Garfield and help me do the work that it would take six people to do for an ordinary sane podcast. And also keep your ears out. In a week or so, I will be on the delightful Weird Studies podcast talking about 
my essay, The Future Acts Like You, which is really relevant to this George Dvorsky conversation, actually, talking about the digital simulacrum and the mind clone, sideloading ourselves into the future by creating a living trace fossil, an AI copy of you that acts as your proxy, your mixed reality mini-me. <laughs> but for now, here is a lovely conversation with George Dvorsky. Thanks for listening and enjoy. George Dvorsky, it is such a pleasure to have you on Future Fossils podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. For all the consideration that we give to the future in this show, it's it's strangely rare that I actually get a professional futurist on. So I'd like to, to structure this in kind of a, a, a lay format where, you know, you've spent in, in some cases years considering these specific, these specific issues. And I think it would be fun to, to just kind of go through and, and, uh, get the expert stance on things. One, one thing in particular and I, that I know is, is dear to you also is the conversation around near-term, real-world practical implementation of AI and what this is going to look like when we're running AI in your car or in your various appliances in your home. And I'm curious what you see as the most exciting and, and, and what you see as the most sort of uh, troubling or concerning aspects of this, that where, where you feel that people ought to be paying their, putting their attention right now. Yeah, this is exactly right. We're, uh, we're, we're definitely no longer in, an, in the so-called AI winter, an AI winter being this period of time where uh, development in this field is slow to non-existent, and everyone uh, who was at one point enthusiastic about it suddenly feels that, oh, there's no future in artificial intelligence at all. We are definitely not in an AI winter right now. And much of that has to do with um, uh, new ways of, of doing AI, most, most prominently machine learning uh, and deep learning, but also things like reinforcement algorithms. And it's really revolutionized our approach to artificial intelligence. And we're starting to see the fruits of this pop up around us. This is no longer these, these kinds of conceptual things that we say, oh, it's going to be 10 years off in the future or 25 years off in the future. I'm sure many of us opened up our Christmas uh, presents uh, back in December to find either uh, you know, an Amazon uh, Echo or a Google Home. And now our homes are starting to become littered with these things. We're, I mean, literally only two or three years ago, this was still rather uh, futuristic and conceptual. But it was, again, predicted many, many years. I mean, I, I, I was waiting for these virtual assistants as much as, you know, 15 years ago, knowing that we would have uh, these language user interfaces where you could literally just talk to a machine and it would understand regular English and then respond back to you. Clearly, it's incredibly primitive, like so primitive still. Like we will we'll imagine how we'll look back in 10 years, how, it just, how stupid it was, like how dumb Alexa is, how she can't understand a, a thing or how the kind of crazy responses that Google Home would give you. I mean, that's what's so beautiful about seeing these things pop up in our environment today is because you can, you can still see the potential, though. You can understand where the improvement needs to be because you start to you always push technologies further than they're kind of capable of. So we're already asking these things questions that we kind of know they don't have the answer to yet in the hopes that maybe it's going to surprise you and give you a really <laughs> profound answer. In fact, sometimes I'll ask. I'll ask. I, I am an owner of an Amazon. Uh, it's right next to me here. I have, a, I have an Amazon, uh, the dot. 
and sometimes I'm surprised at what uh, what answers uh, she's able to give me. Um, but um, it, it is in a, in a way right now, as a friend recently said to me, it is kind of a glorified calculator. Because uh, the things that I ask it to do is to, you know, convert. Uh, I, I write for Gizmodo, so I'm constantly having to convert units of measurement. And that's, the tool is great for that because I can keep typing and I just, you know, using, the again, the, the language user interface to get those responses, get it back. But, um, yeah, I mean, the, the, but then at the same time, you see also the pitfalls and the perils of these devices. You know, I think a couple of days ago, I was uh, getting ready for bed and the lights were already out. And because I also have a dot in my bedroom, suddenly Alexa started spewing off some kind of advertisement about new features that is part of the... Uh, oh, no. But, and I was, I was I'm not going to lie, I was, I was pretty pissed because I got thinking to myself, oh, man... Is this, and then I looked into it the next day, and sure enough, these are these are notifications, and uh, Amazon has warned that this will be part of the uh, part of what it is, you know, moving forward, that it's going to push notifications to you, uh, telling you about its features. And I wasn't satisfied with the my ability to be able to disable those because I, I didn't see what the toggle switch for that particular um, notification. So this, if you're, if we're literally putting, you know, these bots in our houses that are now just mediums for advertising, then that's kind of horrible. And I will flush it down the toilet without hesitation. I mean, uh, we're starting to see, you know, um, uh, new products emerge on the market on a regular basis. I'll choose the one that I feel is uh, best for me, safest from, for my family and uh, as unintrusive as possible when it just simply does what I need it to do. And uh, so that, yeah, I mean, uh, and at the same time, you know, um, it also gives you pause for thought about, some of the more, I guess, ethical side of things and the safety aspects of things. And I'm thinking particularly when it comes to children and how they're, what their use of these devices are like. I mean, we're already, they're already having, uh, you know, AI enabled dolls for girls uh, where, you know, it actually learns their name, you know, learns certain tendencies about them and it starts to react to them almost as if they're a, like a real child or a real baby, but it's just a, a bot that's just script based. Maybe maybe it's working on you know uh, machine learning. I, I'm not sure what, how sophisticated these things are, but it makes me wonder if you're a four year old girl, are you able to actually cognitively understand that that is actually not an entity worthy of any moral consideration? Meaning like it, it's not a person. It's not something that she should she should really care about as another being. Let not, not, it's not like a kitten or a dog or a, or a brother or, or a mother. It's just a dead doll. But does a, can a four-year-old wrap its head around it if this doll is actually referring to her by name, uh, understanding what she needs, asking her what she wants? So that's something that we have to talk about. But also, <laughs> let's take something like, let's take a four-year-old or a six-year-old's interaction with the Google Home and it asks it certain questions. Uh, should should it be giving them the same answer as it would you or you or I? Um, and, and and how can we you know teach these devices to learn the difference between you know who's asking the question? So I often find like like so many technologies, they're often introduced well before we've actually answered these questions, and certainly before we've actually imbued these technologies with the capacities to figure these things out. In a, in a similar way, the way algorithms on YouTube are. Are feeding content to, to children based on their on their viewing behaviors, and we're finding that they children go to certain they fall down certain paths and certain avenues where they watch certain types of programming that adults would have absolutely no interest in. Um, and but is it, is it healthy? Is it good? Is it something we should be alarmed about? Maybe you no. Know, maybe it's completely harmless. I don't know. But these are what technologies today, as they're as they're appearing, are allowing us to kind of peer into the future so that we can tweak them and make them perhaps what we won't actually want them to be.
Mm. Yeah, I think about that, the research findings from a couple of years ago that people were significantly more comfortable riding in an autonomous vehicle if it had been given a human name and spoke to them in a human voice. And there's this this thing about our cognitive bias to anthropomorphize or to personalize the thing that we're interacting with and how in one sense this is actually a neurohack of extraordinary proportions for teaching the machines how to interface with us like you talk about like the natural language speaking interface as a, a sort of holy grail that we're fumbling into but this issue of the sort of philosophical question of the person on the other end of a transaction and how it's becoming more and more difficult for us to know. I mean, you look at to scale it out from robot and four-year-old to, you know, the, the way that our society is itself inadequately literate to deal with these things. You know, the vast number of bots involved in social media steering public opinion about all these things. So I guess there's that ethical issue there's the the at what point you know how do we start to tease apart these more uh nuanced issues of personhood but then you know also you know you talk about opening our homes to all of these these uh business actors that have different interests in in our personal data and i'm i'm curious how you see this conversation like interfacing with conversations around cybersecurity and encryption and like what what privacy will mean in these new spaces yeah and we've been worrying about this for for a long time and uh, who i mean who who would have thought that we would you know voluntarily bring these devices into our homes what could be these uh, massive you know surveillance technologies you know you look at you know some orwellian nightmare uh, it was imposed upon us. You know, the, the state forced you to have these surveillance devices in your home, and lo and behold, we are voluntarily installing, buying, purchasing them, and installing them in our in our homes, and just um, hoping that uh, they are as secure and uh, uh, non-invasive as, as the manufacturers have led us to believe. Again, what they what what, uh, what they're telling us is that that they're not actually listening these devices until you actually say the wake word, but. How, how that's okay, it could be true. I, I hope it's true. Um, but how easy would it be for a manufacturer to disable that feature such that it's constantly listening and such that all the dialogue that happens in your house is being fed to, um, you know, a, a data repository and, of course, powerful filters go through it with, go through machine learning, uh, pattern recognition, can pick out perhaps conversations that are flagged for whatever reason, whether it's because that's what the company is looking for or because maybe uh, times are tough in the future and we're mo- moving more toward a surveillance state, more toward authoritarian style governments, and they just want and are demanding access to that information. Uh, that's definitely a, a kind of a scary space for the future, one we most certainly need to keep in mind um, as we are introducing these tools in, in our homes. And it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, um, uh, these personal assistants it can be any other thing in, in the house these capacities. So, uh, as to how encryption and, and and other you know security measures can play into that, that's that's not my immediate expertise, and I can't I can't speak to that. Uh, but uh, certainly, um, uh, security has to be something that is thought out uh, at, at 
at the development stage of these products. Uh, let's take again, um, not that I keep picking on um, Amazon's uh, uh, Echo, but it's 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 uh, it's so insecure right now uh, to be almost laughable. And again, we will again. I always like to look at things around us today that we will laugh at years from now and marvel as to how stupid it was. And so the ease at which you can order product with uh, with this device now. So let's say you set up your your you've got your Amazon account set up, your your credit card is all set up. And I think it really, uh, I've never actually gone through this process myself, but as I understand, if you want to, if you want to actually purchase something, you say, hey, Alexa, I want to purchase, uh, you know, uh, 24 cans of Coca-Cola. Just going off here. Alexa, stop. <laughs> Brutal, right? She Don't actually it. purchase I'm that. I'm actually going to turn it right off. <laughs> right off. <laughs> oh, <laughs> death. <laughs> What are you doing, Dave? I <laughs> 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 start to, <laughs> to argue with you. Anyway, yeah, that's <laughs> right. So it would have, it would have, as you saw, that set it off. It was ready to make the order. It just needed me to make a confirmation. And next thing you know, I'm getting 24, ca- 24 cans of Coke, uh, you know, uh, shipped to my house. Uh, and there was, I believe, a prank on South Park where uh, it triggered a number of. Uh, 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 dots or echoes all across you know, North America just got it freaking out which got me thinking yeah I mean it's it's kind of absurdly easy uh, to kind of mess with the system and I was uh, it was joking with my uh, wife that you know uh, a podcast like this one or a radio show or a TV show could definitely just very just go through the script uh, and next thing you know Amazon is shipping out millions and millions of a product as some kind of elaborate prank uh, I'm not sure what, what I'm not sure what kind of uh, safety measures they have for that, but you, you see how flimsy it is, right? You see how easy it is to get around it. Uh, the wake-up word is a very flimsy barrier right now uh, to infiltrating a, a, an individual's account. But how do you how do you fix that? I initially thought, okay, well, we, the wake-up word would have to be actually a password. But then you have guests come over and other things and they'll learn your password very quickly so you know it's gonna have to be it'll be voice recognition i mean it'll be biometrics so there's, al- there's almost always like a fix to these things right you just have to be you just have to be uh um you know creative when it comes to um to coming up with solutions if i might just jump to a different topic only because it just yeah. kind of triggered this in my mind so recently at a uh, conference uh, on uh, as an artificial intelligence conference in uh, in toronto and we were talking about autonomous vehicles, which is, I'm glad we're going to move away from the virtual assistants. Maybe now we can talk about uh, autonomous vehicles a little bit. And uh, as we're fully expecting, these things are going to be super safe, right? That's kind of the point, as I understand it, and as I oh, certainly demand in these, in, these, uh, in these vehicles. So somebody brought up the scenario that kind of made me shake my head because I realized, oh, man, this could actually happen, which is, pedestrians could basically kind of run amok in this future world. All, all these cars are, are, are uh, autonomous and, you know, they're designed to not never hit a pedestrian. What would prevent, you know, pedestrians from just walking out and jaywalking left and right, knowing that these cars are just going to have to slow down and let them go through. And that, oh my God, this future world of, uh, you know, uh, it would actually really mess with traffic flow and mess with the cars and, People would, you know, be able to walk all over the streets and all that. And it's a bit of a fantastic uh, scenario now that I mention it because what's to prevent people today from doing that? Because I think most drivers wouldn't dare uh, hit a pedestrian. I think I think we trust perhaps a human driver less <laughs> to actually stop for a jaywalking pedestrian than we might trust a uh, an artificial intelligence. But let's not that notwithstanding. 
uh, it, well, it seemed initially to be uh, an intractable problem. One of the first solutions I had was that, okay, what you do is you just impose a rather lofty fine for uh, jaywalking, like a, not, not just a slap on the wrist, but a damn a hefty fine. Like in Canada, for example, if you are, if you, because I know it varies from state to state, but uh, in uh, the province where I live, Ontario, if you're caught speaking on your cell phone while driving, that's, that's a $500 fine. That is, that hurts, right? So why not give jaywalkers a similar fine uh, for a similar offense? And it's extremely enforceable because the car will just have a, a camera on it. Facial recognition takes your picture off to the police department. The next thing you know, you've got a bill in the mail for 500 bucks for jaywalking. Similar to what they do with uh, uh, red light cameras, do a similar thing. And not with facial recognition, but with your license plate. And well, you, when you do run red lights, uh, you do get a picture back of your smiling face as you're running through uh, uh, the red light. But uh, again, the only point I'm bringing this up is new technologies kind of introduce complexities that we, maybe we didn't anticipate. Oftentimes, the tendency is to panic about it and say that there is no solution. But if you think about it through, more often than not, there are ways in which we can we can deal with this. We can find again solutions. That's what we do as a species. We've done this. This is this almost human civilization is predicated on technological innovation, problem, solution, and we move forward. So that's a, you, it's an interesting point you make that even though as a rider, people are still sort of chewing on their trust of the driverless car. Most people are still a little sketchy about it. But as a pedestrian, yeah, it just uh, it does seem straw poll wise that most people would be more willing to step in front of a robotic vehicle than, you know, a car where somebody's like asleep at the wheel or potentially asleep at the wheel. And it seems yeah, like no, this, this issue of trust is such a fascinating one when it comes to delegating our own decision-making power to artificial intelligences. You get this, this it shows up in all these different ways with, you know, the, the fact that, was it like more than 90% of the financial trading is, is carried out by high frequency algorithms now. And so it's like, if, but, and yet we're still in this conversation about on the loop, off the loop with respect to automated weapons. And, and, and so I'm, I'm, I'm curious, you know, how you see this playing out as our trust issues interface with artificial intelligence taking over more and more of the functions in our everyday lives. Yeah, that's a huge uh, barrier right now. And uh, yeah, you're right to point out that uh, we're still kind of um, coming to grips with what it'll mean to have, you know, access to autonomous vehicles. And um, I'm not sure if this, this, speaks exactly to what you're saying. Um, and maybe it speaks more to the confused ethics that we have. Um, and not even confused ethics. It points to the fact that we've had, we have literally thousands and thousands of years of ethical discourse. And it seems that the introduction of machine autonomy is really forcing us to apply these learnings in a way that we've never had to deal with before. So, a good example was, I think a couple of years ago, um, uh, people were surveyed about, um, uh, about kind of like trolley problem scenarios as it pertains to autonomous vehicles. And they were, again, given the classic scenarios, again, you're, uh, you've got an autonomous vehicle and there's a passenger in the vehicle. And uh, it's careening toward a, uh, a bus stop with 10 people at the bus stop. 
the only possible maneuver is to steer into, you know, a guy in a sports car uh, and likely killing the guy in a sports car. You know, what do you do? And these kinds of, you know, there's a, there's a whole body of trolley problems, some more complicated than others, where you throw people into the path of destruction that weren't normally in the past. or so using people kind of as a means to an end to avert larger scale destruction. So, but anyways, um, yeah, people, for the most part, they said, yeah, it makes sense. Like, this is, this is, this uh, makes total ethical sense. Uh, you know, you, you can't kill, you know, 10 people at a bus stop, if, if the, and especially if the, the only alternative is, if, if you do have that other alternative of killing a lone individual, um, great. Uh, other scenarios, for example, are such that the driver, or the, rather the passenger of the autonomous vehicle would be the one killed. So in, instead of hitting, for example, uh, the 10 uh, people at the bus stop, uh, the only option is for the car to drive into a brick wall, possibly killing uh, or badly injuring the passenger. Once again, most respondents are like, yeah, get it too. Makes makes sense. These kinds of utilitarian, you know, machinations and sensibilities in our brains kind of light up and say, yeah, this kind of makes sense. But here's the crazy thing about this study was now they ask the respondents, well, would you buy that car? Like, would you want to be a passenger in that car? <laughs> And the vast majority of people said, no, 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 that's not a car. That's not the car for me. Not the car for me. That's not, that's not how I want, how I want this to roll. <laughs> Which to me was, I was flabbergasted that result because it's, if there was ever a once your cake and eat a tooth scenario, that, that was it, right? Like, oh, oh, really? So it's good, you know, it's good for the, you know, what was good for the goose is not good for the gander here type thing or, so. Um, uh, it, made, it made me realize that people need to start thinking about these issues much more deeply and much more with much more consideration and, and thoughtfulness, and not just kind of like be selfish about it. Because I, I and I have, what I would ask people to do as well is ask yourself: like, if you're in that situation, if you're if you're actually driving the car, so forget autonomy, you're actually driving that car. What are you going to do in that split second that you have to think about it? You know, you probably drive into the brick wall and kill yourself. Maybe nine out of ten, maybe six out of ten, maybe ninety-nine out of hundred. I don't know, but to me, my my own my own gut instinct is that very very few people would brazenly and willingly plow their car through a bus stop filled with, with passengers. So why do we feel that uh, we wouldn't want to own a car that's programmed with that same ethical sensibility? So uh, you were talking about trust earlier. This is kind of having to do a little a little, little bit about that. Trust definitely applies when, again, as you were suggesting, there are some scenarios when uh, we're out of, the, out of the loop, so-called. And that's definitely an, is, an issue in uh, uh, autonomous weapon, autonomous weaponry, where, as I'm sure your listeners are, are aware, the drones that fly over Afghanistan or Pakistan, whenever um, a missile should fly off or engages in any kind of um, uh, military action, it is controlled by a human. There is a human still in the loop that makes that killing decision. We, we are not at the stage yet where we have, you know, Terminator type robots that will make those decisions, but we're having those conversations and doesn't take, a, a, you know, a, a crazy imagination to understand why we'd, we'd want to do that. And of course we would have, we have the technologies that can make that possible. So now imagine that you've got, you know, bots, whether they be drones or uh, autonomous tanks, uh, going out into um, uh, conflict uh, areas, it makes it has to make some kind of an assessment. A human is out of the loop. It kills an enemy combatant, or does it? Did it kill a farmer in a rake? You know, did it just screw up its visual processing? Um, you know, uh, how does it even how does it even go about some of the levels of complexity uh, that soldiers and uh, um, have got you know had to have struggled with you know for for a long time when it comes to determining friend from foe. So there are this this 
And of, and of course, uh, the potential for this to be hijacked by terrorists, to be to have these technologies now thrown in our face against us, raise another interesting possibility, such that you're already seeing groups emerging, institutes emerging that are calling for bans on autonomous killing machines. There, there was a talk at the United Nations uh, late last year. Um, again, just trying to get this conversation going that there should be a moratorium and that we should never, ever allow humans to be out of the loop uh, when it comes to killing other individuals. There is a school thought that's, a, that's opposed to that, saying, look, this is what we, what the, the, the fact that we, we, should, we should not want humans killing humans. You know, what, what, what parents want to send their, their child to a, to a foreign country to get killed, you know, um, when you could actually send a machine over to, to do the same job. By the same token, you can see how repulsive that might be. It might make the act of killing all the more easier and more convenient. So strange days ahead. And unfortunately, <laughs> I'd like to tell you that I know the answer to this question and that we will uh, ban these sorts of weapons. But historical precedent being what they are, this is probably not going to happen. If you can point out to me, you know, I mean, we do have bans against chemical weapons and biological weapons. Yeah, we see in recent history, these things get used when time gets tough. That's the thing, whenever like a, an army or a regime or whatever, whenever push really comes to shove, when their backs are against the wall, I can't think of any more cliches, uh, they will use these, these illegal weapons. And, you know, back in the 19th century, in the late 19th century, when they started to develop things like hand grenades and the machine gun and these weapons, they, were, they freaked out. And uh, I believe it was Nicholas II of Russia. Uh, he, alarmed by this, he held a conference. It was kind of like a, a precursor to Geneva Convention stuff. He said, we're going to ban this, ban this, and ban this, and ban this. And I think most people were kind of on board with the idea. But when wars broke out, it was like, no, they, just, they, they used all the tools that they had at their disposal. So wh why should we assume that we're any different? We should not be presentist in this sense. Uh, we have a, you know, a long history of having these crazy new weapons suddenly at our disposal that shocked us, that alarmed us, that thought that we're now engaging in, you know, um, in, in indiscriminate. In, in, at the time, they were really upset about the, imp the impersonal aspect of killing. That you can kill people at an extreme distance, which is something you could not do before. Similarly today, our discomfort is not, humans not even involved in the killing now. So not even at a distance, but not even a human involved anymore. And that's ca causing us to be perturbed a little bit. And why we're starting to think, of, now we need to ban these weapons, because God only knows where that's going to lead down, down the line. So that's definitely um, one of the more pertinent areas of uh, AI discourse today, is de the, uh, the uh, looming advent of uh, uh, autonomous killing machines. Yes, indeed. That is not a yes of excitement. That is, <laughs> of course. <laughs> although, although I was excited to see uh, the the RoboCop remake from a few years ago because it really did feel like now was the time to 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 return to the, this material and these questions. But um, you know, I I think about this stuff, and I, you know, even before you brought it up, I was thinking about that that early attempt to suppress machine guns and long range artillery, and just how futile that is in retrospect but at the same time you know we would like to believe that we can you know that we can preserve the best things about our humanity and that it's not just this constant compromise of okay well all right that's that's the new normal so you know what do you see as the canny practical but not cynical not pessimistic not unreasonably you know Pollyanna, optimistic. There's there's a middle road here, you know. There's there's a way where people can rise to an occasion of technological literacy, 
and ethical, you know, contemplation. And I mean, what do you what do you see that looking like? What are the challenges that we're being yeah. faced as individuals look, living in this kind of a world? Look, I mean, um, I'm on Team AI. You know, I'm 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 all I'm all for I'm all for it. I, I cannot wait what artificial intelligence is going to do. Um, drug discovery, for example, you know, looking at, you know, for example, the, or the virtual assistants, you know, four to five generations from now, where in, in, for all intents and purposes, they will be acting as our virtual selves, that it will, our, our, our virtual assistants will know everything about us, know our tendencies, our proclivities, wh- how we will likely, the kinds of decisions we would likely make. And they'll be our proxy selves and we'll let them do work on our behalf. Ultimately, we'll be, at the end of the day, we'll be responsible for their, their actions and their behaviors. Um, but it will be that close enough of an approximation that we, it'll allow us to, to do other, other things as, as humans, but also you could send fleets of these things to do work for you. We can be so much more, more productive. That, that's, that, that, that's what astounds me about AI. Um, not to mention, again, the ways, uh, again, um, med tech is definitely a huge interest of mine. So I immediately you know, lean there towards where I, where I feel um, AI could help, but uh, there's almost no there's almost no field in which um, AI will be um, uh, irrelevant. Um, the materials development, uh, space exploration, uh, of course, enabling robot robots to do um, what they need to do. Uh, so um, I'm not sure if I'm, if I'm answering your question, but I, I do want to just you know uh, make it clear that I'm you know I'm very much on board with uh, uh, what what we can do with artificial intelligence and where we need to take it. But as you can probably tell I do have my concerns as to some of the darker yeah. uh, avenues. Well, I guess what it boils down to for me, or the another way of phrasing this question, would be what do you see as the necessary literacies for an, a, an average person moving into a world mm-hmm. where we, right. we are volunteering these proxies to, to act on our behalf? You know, and, yeah. and so, you know, and I, I just see like it, it occurred to me about a year ago and I was sitting, I was working on a painting. I've got a lot of artist friends and I was like, what if I could assign a, a, an emulation of myself to spend an entire, I mean, and now we're, we're blurring the line between artificial intelligence and artificial consciousness and we can kind of just bracket that. But like, let's say that I could train a system that understood my artistic style and then could study one of my friend's styles and kind of can digest it and produce a piece that, you know, is like 20 years of studying a master. And then I thought, oh my God, we're going to see this arms race of people who are just absorbing each other's abilities and forming these, you know, that it's, it's, I, I think about the centaurs in chess where you've got teams of humans paired with artificial intelligences and they're all going together. So like, how does a person live in this world? Like, what is it going to take for your, your ordinary human (laughs) being to, you know, what kind of literacy would be vital in this Uh, space? Wow. I mean, uh, I think, um, Definitely, I think acceptance to a certain degree. <laughs> and, uh, I think one risks, I think, fighting against these trends because it'd be, uh, I think, a losing battle. The, 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 the trick is to stay, at least to keep pace um, uh, with, with these developments and uh, find ways in which you can work alongside it. Um, I love that you brought up the, uh, the centaurs because that's, a, I think, a huge area in the future because we're not, we're so far away still from um, artificial general intelligence, you know, uh, the kind of general intelligence that you and I, we're, we're 
super generalized form of intelligence. We, we, we can problem solve. I can drop you in the middle of nowhere and you can get your bearings and understand the context. AI, not even close to that right now. It, they just do very straightforward, simple things with, with what's referred to as narrow, um, narrow AI. But what, if we can pair uh, a, 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 a system with a human, uh, you do get, and I might use this word, a synergistic um, result. And that's what the chess masters are learning, that uh, uh, that they, they can produce some, some remarkable results when they work in tandem with the computer. And I don't think that chess is going to be the, the be-all and end-all of this area. I think virtually uh, anything, you know, um, I think art's a great example. Um, you know, imagine composing music. Um, with an artificial intelligence at your disposal, and, 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 and with you know with a language user interface as well, um, you can communicate what is it, what it is you need, what you're looking for, what inspiration you need to draw from, and uh, to together create something you know incredibly complex and beautiful, uh, something that a human couldn't do all by themselves, and something that an AI most certainly would not have been able to do all by itself. And uh, even at, at work, whether you're an accountant or, or you're in finance, if you have an AI at, at, at your disposal to uh, to maybe put you and, and, and enable you to, to kind of go into a place you wouldn't normally go. I think that's uh, I think that's um, uh, something that I think uh, individuals need to be um, uh, aware of. So that yeah, that's the kind of form of literacy I think that's important. But also knowing you know understanding limitations uh, to be cynical uh, when new products are uh, are released and you're immediately working with them to understand that look this is a company that uh, they're trying to make a profit, they're trying to sell these en masse, and uh, they're trying to steer you into certain directions to make you feel that you need that. So as always, ask yourself, what is the problem that this uh, uh, solution is trying to solve, and, and can you fully articulate it as, as a problem that needed, needed to be solved? Um, and also be, be critical of some of the, you know, some of the features that are, uh, that, are, that are part of these products. I'm becoming increasingly annoyed, for example, at uh, the canned responses. Like I'll say to to the Alexa here, which I've turned off, so I can say Alexa, Alexa, Alexa. It's kind of liberating, actually. Alexa, Alexa, I get not no response now. <laughs> I killed it. Um, you could say um, set a timer for for two minutes, right? And it'll say time. Oh no, sorry, Siri does this. The, uh, Apple Siri does this. I'll say Siri, set a timer for two minutes, and she'll say timer set. The suspense is killing me. I'm like ah, like okay, maybe the first time it was charming, but then. There's, there's only about maybe three or four of these preset canned responses, and now it's just annoying. And it also got me wondering, what, well, what, what if maybe some of these responses were kind of maybe inappropriate even? What if it's a very serious situation? This is not a thing like, we like to think when they're developing these things, like, like oh, you're just setting it for the, for the barbecue or for your eggs to become, you know, uh, boiled properly. But what if it was like literally a life and death situation that, that requires some kind of functionality or device that's giving you these bizarre, stupid canned responses? Like, that's not funny and it's not helpful. On this topic of life and death situations, and again, not necessarily along this, this thread of what we're talking about now, but I just remembered a situation that happened in Britain, I think it was about a year ago, maybe yeah, about a year or so ago, I want to say. And, and, and forgive me if I get some, some of the facts uh, a little bit wrong, but I do believe the child involved here was only about four years old, three or four years old. And uh, his mom was unconscious. And uh, the only phone in the house was her uh, iPhone. So it wasn't like in the old days when uh, we were kids that we had landlines in the house and you could just pick up the phone and dial 911, right? I don't have a landline in my house, not anymore. I, I got rid of that quite a, a while ago. When I had a landline in the house, people used to, they would chastise me like, 
you still have a landline? Anyways, <laughs> so I'm still, you feel, you almost feel embarrassed to have one, kind of influence the, the decision to not have one. But if you're, if you're a family with young children, this story should give you pause for thought because when the, when the mom uh, was unconscious and there was no landline in the house and the boy picked up the phone, it was locked. Uh-huh. So it was locked. Yeah. And so this kid was pretty smart and he grabbed mom's thumb and he used mom's thumb to uh, unlock it with her, with her thumbprint. That's, that's pretty resourceful for a four year old in a panic situation, right? Not, yeah. not too shabby. And, uh, he, in, in Britain, it's nine, nine, nine. And, uh, he got the dispatch and the first thing he said was my mommy's dead. And the, the, the lady on the dispatch, but this is all available on YouTube. You can look it up and maybe direct your listeners to this, the, the record, the recording. I think I, I covered it again. So, um, the dispatcher asked some more questions and, uh, you know, realized that mom was in a bad way. So dispatch ambulance, fire, all that stuff. And, uh, they actually made it to the, uh, to the house and they actually saved her life. Uh, so they actually revived her and she was okay, but it is a learning, uh, episode because, um, you know, uh, and, and when I, of course, when I, when I, um, when I wrote this, I got critical comments saying, Oh, don't you know, that you can unlock the phone for an emergency, you know, even uh, you just have to swipe this and click that and move this. I'm like, oh, okay, well, uh, you know, you can definitely get, well, one, that might be a bit too complicated for a four-year-old, but secondly, it might even be complicated for a person, a grown person in a, in a crisis situation. So uh, again, just things to think about in terms of uh, where, uh, where not only where new technologies are taking us, but where the removal of tried and true, true technologies is now causing some gaps uh, when it comes to you know uh, some uh, safety issues. So that that's the story that always struck with me for a long time. I, I think about it often. So I wonder where what else are we removing from our environment, or, or or how are we constricting new tools in our environment to prevent some rather common sense you know ways out of problems. Totally. I mean, I just think of the. <laughs> failed efforts that we've made to or not you know the the mixed successes that we've had with scaling food production and how now some of our, our most densely populated areas are food deserts and it has a similar a similar thing where you know we we trade certain conveniences we we lose something in that process like uh nicholas carr in his book the glass cage talks about the possibility that turn-by-turn map directions are eroding our memory at a fundamental level because all of our memories are are based on the neural networks associated with spatial orientation. And I forget who it was he interviewed in that book, but he interviewed some some neuroscientists who said, yeah, we're probably looking at a generation of early onset Alzheimer's from all these people who are building these mental McMansions on sand, you know, that they they haven't... Yeah. So that's that's another ethical... Sort of. Definitely. I had a hilarious dream a couple of nights ago, literally a couple of nights ago. Um, I was in the backseat of a car with my folks and I had, a, I had a, a, a paper map with me. And the, the interesting thing about uh, the dream was that I didn't know where, where I was in the map. All I just saw was highways and roads and intersections and, and some geographical features. And I'm looking at that going, I have no idea where I am in, in, in this map right now. And, and, and uh, so I, then I, I'm just looking around. So I'm looking, so I'm comparing the map to my immediate surroundings, having to kind of get my bearings. And I notice, okay, some, some, some structures, some features here uh, lead me to believe that I might be here. So I said to my dad in the dream, I said, if in a couple of minutes we get to a, a river, I know exactly where we are in this map. And by the way, one thing I didn't, I didn't stress, I was futilely 
trying to double click on the map to get me to get that locate. Like, you know, on some maps you can like click and it'll auto locate you. Yeah. I don't, just trying to get myself to, to locate like I was losing ways or something like that. And it was not working. It's like, no papers, paper, which is, which is funny because I can't believe I would do that in a dream. But you see kids, by the way, do that. You see, like you see like a three-year-old uh, pick up like a magazine. I've heard the story from so many parents. Uh, they'll pick up a magazine. Oh, yeah, they'll try to, yeah. They say it's broken. <laughs> this is me and my stupid dream. So sure enough, and I, we, we we managed to reach the river, and I'm like, amazing! I know how to read an analog map. I'm the best. You know, this is crazy. But uh, yeah, I mean, I remember the old days when it, what it meant to um, what it meant to uh, you know plan a trip. I remember one time, um, you know, we the family would go to Florida, the drive from uh, from Ontario, Florida, and we just call up the maps and just do our best to try to figure what would be the, you know, the, the, the most expeditious way to get from here to there. And now it's just absolutely done for us. And uh, yeah, how, how fun would it be? I think if you've, if you've got young kids now to put them through that exercise, I don't think there's nothing, nothing wrong with that. I think uh, perhaps uh, this kind of old timey parenting, maybe uh, just to kind of, under, just to show kids uh, what's kind of involved in the process. But yeah, yeah, just uh, my my silly dream. Yeah. Well, you know, in the totally relatable struggle of this dream, I hear something that you 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 actually talk about this a lot, or you have over the the last few years, and it's it's an area that I find literally keeps me awake at night. Where I, I you know a few years ago I saw the TED talk on the interspecies internet. It was Peter Gabriel and Vince Cerf and a couple animal researchers talking about how is it that we're going to ethically involve, you know, dolphins and and primates and other persons, non-human persons, in the digital society. You know, actually find interfaces for them and weave them in in a way that they might even be able to participate culturally or even politically. And in in that conversation, I hear what I also hear in your dream, which is this, like, the rushing to keep up, the confusion around which literacies and which platforms, and I get this sense of what it is to be a human now, trying to make sense of living in a global technological civilization, is probably actually not that dissimilar from what it's like to be a pet and like not understanding why right. this, these people leave at this time of day, they come back here, what's going on over there. And so I would just be totally remiss if I didn't invite you to talk a little bit about the ethics of animal uplift on this and you know how sure, you feel this sure. all fits it's, in there. It's funny that you asked me this. It's not a topic that I have uh, given much thought in the last few years, but it really was uh, it consumed me for, uh, I would say a while back, like I want to say around 2003 through to 2007 or so that, 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 that period there. And, but to be honest with you, I'm not sure if my, uh, you know, my, my perspectives or my opinions have changed all that much. So what I was, what I was arguing at the time was that, look, we, we are embarking, um, uh, toward, you know, uh, the reinvention of the human species, you know, we're, we're getting into this transhumanistic mode, moving toward the so-called post-human, where the post-human is by definition, something that can, has capacities and uh, physical features and all the things that are so vastly removed from what we consider to be normal human functioning as to no longer qualify as being a member of the human species. And that can be a completely cyborgized individual. It can be somebody that's been up uploaded to the, to the cloud, uh, you know, somebody who's like super genetically modified and, or a hybrid of, you know, many of these things. And 
I also think about, you know, we're free from disease. We are healthy, vibrant, happy, hopefully, and long-lived. You know, I'm a, definitely a proponent of radical life extension as well. And then it got, I got thinking that, man, like, uh, what is, what do we do? Just leave nature, you know, to just wallow in its own misery and, uh, you know, not do our bit, you know, uh, as, you know, as patrons of this planet to kind of, you know, uh, do what's more, what, what maybe, you know, morally right in this context. And I got thinking that, yeah, we can't, uh, the name of the paper was, uh, all together now, you know, that this idea that we should, we should, we should all revert to a post-biological mode of being to get to, to uh, together. And, uh, I think it's perhaps a misnomer to think that, you know, we would, we'd, you know, we would have, um, you know, you know, just that we uplift dogs and cows, let's say, to be, you know, human level capacity. That's not what we're saying. It is literally all together now, the transformation um, of the biosphere into something that is intelligent, like super intelligent. Of course, that's not functionally super intelligent. That might not even be possible. That's another podcast. Uh, <laughs> yes. But um just to say at the very broad strokes so that, uh, you know, because the, the concern for me is I'm, I'm not a big fan of Darwinian natural selection. In fact, I hate it. Uh, it's, it's kind of a brutal, mean spirited way of, you know, of, 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 for genes to figure things out, to keep proliferating. And if, if you think about the amount of suffering that must go on on the world on a, on a daily basis, it kind of it absolutely boggles the mind. It's uh, it's it's it's, 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 it's something that we tend to not think about in our as our privileged status as as human beings. But certainly got me thinking that if we are in a super privileged status of post humans, you know what could we do to transform the biosphere and uh, all all the animal life on this planet? Do we just leave it in that state, in that Darwinian mode of existence? Or is there, is there something we should do to kind of put, put it to an end? And maybe take all of the animals, uh, again, this is, not, and this is definitely in the realm of the fantasy and the science fiction, and, and uh, forgive if it sounds a bit, a bit crude, but again, just thinking that we should let every animal retire into a state of post-biological, you know, uh, and, 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 and transform them into a state of post-biological being. So take whales and cows and uh, foxes and raccoons or whatever, and take those those living beings and perhaps uplift them into something that uh, is, has a, is a bit more um, meaningful and uh, certainly filled with a lot less suffering. So again, not having uh, talked about that for a while, that's my uh, Reader's Digest version of uh, what I was uh, what I was arguing back then. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's the obviously the very long range. It is a long range. But like That's in, not next week, for yeah, sure. But in between here <laughs> and there, I mean, we are now, you know, very actively talking about what it would mean to lace a smart sensor grid into the Great Barrier Reef and turn the reef into a yeah. smart reef, you know, so that we yeah. can do, we can act this upon exactly it. exactly it restoration ecology with reseeding new reefs with genetically modified acid resistant corals and that kind of thing and so you know even though this particular issue of you know do we pull everything with us is in one sense a very long-term consideration in another sense this question of geoengineering and ecological engineering as necessary adaptations to climate change are like in the days you know, are in the news now. And I'm, you know, I'm curious how you uh, 
think about the kind of ethical considerations around this stuff when it, it in a lot of ways it is like the driverless car it's like certain situations are seemingly completely unpalatable until it becomes a matter of necessity and survival and then yeah I'm just uh, I just have a hard time imagining us I don't care what your what, where you you know what your vision of the future is in terms of you know where we're heading and the kinds of timelines involved but like honestly like let's say 10,000 years in the future a million years in the future like are we is are we really going to allow uh, you know, uh, you know, a, a, a lion on the Serengeti to take down you know, an antelope and you know asphyxiate it to death, and then you know, or even before that, rip out its you know innards as it's still you know thrashing on the ground. Like, this is the thing that happens, uh, you know, uh, all, all you know on a very regular basis, and it's been happening for millions and millions and millions of years. Imagine the, the imagine if you somehow calculate all the suffering that went on during the time of, of the dinosaurs across the three different eras of the dinosaurs. Like that's the, that way this kind of like period of like super predators. Right. Um, it, it's just, this is an orb of brutality. And I'd like to think that, you know, in at some point in the future, again, like I said, not next week, not, not a hundred years from now, but at some point that's, can we think about, and I like what you're saying, you know, getting you know, the, the examples of corals might seem, you know, uh, like a small one, but it's, it, it shows that, yeah, take these individual aspects of, of nature, these bits of ecosystems, and rethink how it might work. How can we keep this like a lush, verdant planet, for example, that might even still have wildlife? And some of that wildlife might even, we can retain its biological status while maybe integrating some robotic aspects to it or intelligence somehow, reworking the entire planet uh, in a way that we can't even begin to conceive of right now. And there's something of, of profound beauty. Um, and, it, and at the same time, it, it, it satisfies uh, our moral sensibilities that now we've created a real thing of, uh, again, beauty for the lack of a better term, a, a wonderful place to, to live in the universe as opposed to what it is now. And uh, again, I would caution your viewers because I get a lot of flack about this. Believe me, I get a lot of, you know, people think I'm absolutely nuts for this, but check your privilege as a human being constantly. All right. We have to understand that we are in that a lofty position where we can very conveniently say, no, we should never do this to the animal kingdom. Who are we to do this? Well, that's easy for you to say. And just think, do you, do you want Darwinian natural selection to still do what it's doing a million years from now, a billion years from now? Because it will if we don't do anything about it. Uh, I don't know who said this, but there's an old saying, you know, if we don't play God, well, then who will? So <laughs> this is, I think, part of, part of the, the post-human imperative, if you will, is to definitely play God. Absolutely. Yeah, that's the... Uh, Stuart Brand was a we we are already gods we, we might as well get used to it or something oh, yeah. to that effect perfect yeah. same sentiment yep. yeah <laughs> and, and there's a guy there's a guy who no compunction talking about de-extincting the mammoth and you know restoring yeah, the yeah, Pleistocene yeah, yeah, yeah. megafauna to North America yeah. you know and that's that's where you get the moral considerations clearly have to reach beyond the individual and look at these these wider systems well i mean we're coming up on an hour so i you know out of respect for your time i want to wrap this up but i do want to give you the opportunity typically at the end of these episodes i invite somebody to think about this as a museum exhibit like a you know that you are in this this audio archive that hopefully one day will be restored and poured over by the emulated virtual assistants of <laughs> digital archaeologists. And, uh, and, you know, even though we can never really be sure what they will find of value, because it's often stuff in the trash pile of the greatest interest to archaeologists. Yeah, I'd love to just, you know, leave a message to your, your future self and, 
ask a question or, or offer some nugget to consider for posterity? So is, is advice to my future self or something that I would not you can, quite it's sure? A, leave a book, take a book. It's, it's anything. Advice, questions, strange silences with meaningful looks. We just have to... Well, I would, I would very much like to know if the concern that I currently have about um, uh, where artificial superintelligence is going and the kinds of risks that it, it's uh, potentially imposing upon us, I'd like to know if those concerns we have are, are truly warranted. Because there is a school of thought out there that suggests that, yes, we should be concerned, but we have nothing to worry about because human ingenuity, uh, human foresight, even the use of AI itself will help us overcome what seems to be, uh, by all, and by all accounts, a rather insurmountable uh, challenge. So that's the, that's the one thing I'm, I, I'd like to know, and, uh, and perhaps what, you know, and if it is perhaps more as difficult as we, as we like to make it out to be, I would like to know what, path, what are the, the most um, effective pathways that we could take to achieve uh, a safe future. So that's, uh, that's, that's something that uh, whether I, I um, you know, impart that as this tidbit of information and, and for the archaeological record, but certainly maybe even something in terms of a capsule set that they will look back now, let's say 50 years from now, and say, yeah, I, this is what they were genuinely worried about. Uh, oh, but even then, not so. I, I'd like to, I, 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 let me ask you this. Do you think the, the, the so-called AI alarmists, like myself and the Nick Bostroms of the world and the Elon Musks and, to lesser degrees, the, uh, the Bill Gateses and such, and, the, and, the whole, and all the many, many academics who are working out there in this area, do you still feel that this is a minority fringe opinion, or do you feel that it's generally take it for granted that AI is an so that artificial superintelligence is potentially existential in in terms of its risks for us? Is that a question for me? Or I'm asking, oh, yeah. yeah. For, oh, I yeah. think it's absolutely one of the existential risks that is closest to getting its due conversationally. I think there's a lot of other ones that are not getting their due, but it's absolutely important, especially given people look at this stuff completely out of, you know, it's in these overly simplistic and unrealistic ways, you know, about like the Terminator scenario. And I think it's, you know, it's much more believable that what we're talking about is, is something more like superheroes and supervillains that we're talking about people with, you know, what would seem to us to be superpowers. And, you know, how do we navigate a world where the individuals in this world are capable of doing things that currently only nation states are capable of. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a realistic concern. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that I think maybe in the coming years, I think more and more people will start to, I think, um, understand, uh, you know, know, what the risks truly are and, and, you know, maybe we can start to work, you know, to do something about it before something bad really happens. Awesome. Well, I'd say you're, uh, the odds are good that you will be remembered as a good ancestor. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Future fossils is part of the mind pod network along with third eye drops, the astral hustle synchronicity podcast, and an oodle of other fascinating programs. I encourage you to go to mindpodnetwork.com and subscribe to them all. And stay tuned because we have some awesome episodes coming up on future fossils. But for now, may your now be exquisite, long, and wonderful.